I want to begin by sharing a story with you that's probably not as well known as other Christian stories are shared. This is a story about a man named Gordon Wilson, an Irishman who lived in Northern Ireland in the late 1980s during the height of Protestant and Catholic conflicts in between the British and Irish. Some of you may know during that time there was the Irish Republican Army. Wilson, Gordon Wilson, was a Christian and he was not a part of this army. He worked a simple, small family business job making and selling drapes, you know, like to cover your windows. On a particular day, British Memorial Day, where they honor soldiers who had died for uh, previous world wars, World War I and World War II, Gordon Wilson spent some time in the town square where he worked uh, with fellow family members, friends. And what they did not know is that as they were honoring fallen soldiers and uh, paying kind of a patriotic, patriotic remembrance for the British sol- uh, army, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, sent people to bomb the whole town square where they were doing this ceremony, and the buildings all around them were, were blown up. Uh, n- many of the buildings, because of that, collapsed down and caved in on the people who were in the square. Gordon Wilson and his 20-year-old daughter were two of those people stuck alive underneath of rubble. They were both very seriously injured and were able, as they were underneath the rubble, to talk to one another as they were waiting to be rescued. Eventually, they were rescued, but that night, because of the severe head and spinal injuries, Gordon's daughter died, and he remained alive. He was in the hospital for several days, and after a few days of getting treatment and getting healthier, he was interviewed by some reporters from the BBC. The interview was something that before YouTube and the internet blew up, you would would have, would have called went viral. Like this was a powerful interview because of what Gordon said. He told the reporters that the bomb buried him, buried him and his daughter under five feet of concrete and that the last words that he heard from his daughter were, Daddy, I love you very much. She grasped her father's hand and they waited for their rescuers. The newspaper later proclaimed that while Gordon was on his hospital bed, he said, I have lost my daughter but I will bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to life. And so I will pray. I will pray tonight, and I will pray every night that God will forgive the people who did this. The newspaper said that no one remembers what politicians said around those events. But everyone who heard Gordon Wilson's words will never forget what he said. His grace towered over the miserable justification of these bombers. His daughter's last words were words of love, and Gordon Wilson's determined spirit was a life of love. One reporter said, the world wept, as Wilson gave an interview later again the next week. 
And on and on it went. Gordon Wilson's life was forever changed. As he was released from the hospital, he led a crusade of Protestant Catholic reconciliation. Protestant extremists who had planned to avenge the bombing decided that publicly surrounding Wilson's comments that that would have been a bad move, so they didn't do it. Wilson eventually wrote a book about his daughter, spoke against violent retaliation, and constantly repeated the refrain, the bottom line is love. Eventually he would meet with the IRA. He personally forgave the leaders for what they had done and asked them if they would lay down their arms. He said, I know that you have lost loved ones just like me. Surely enough is enough. Enough blood has been spilled. Ultimately, the Irish Republic Army made Wilson a member of their Senate. He died in 1995, and all of Great Britain honored this ordinary Christian drape maker and seller because of his uncommon spirit of grace and forgiveness. To conclude the story, one reporter said, no words in over 25 years of violence had more of a profound and powerful effect than Gordon Wilson's words on the hospital bed. This story that I heard several months ago was fresh on my mind as I was studying Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 on page 811 in the Black Bibles around you. Gordon Wilson embodies the spirit of Jesus, followed the teaching of Jesus that we saw last week. So if you weren't here last week, I would encourage this week and last week to go hand in hand together as Jesus teaches about a non-violent, aggressive, enemy-loving response to the world's ways. The way of Jesus, my friends, is beautiful, powerful, and I want to encourage you today to follow it. Let's read these words. Starting in verse 43, the sixth and final illustration that Jesus is giving in this little antithesis section. And you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to ask three simple questions. I'm hoping that the simplicity of this little outline of what is Jesus saying, how do we do this, and why should we do it, will help you meditate on your own life. And my prayer and hope is that we will apply these words with a sober and serious earnestness in our own lives. So first, what? What is Jesus saying? I want to... primarily ask that question about the two more controversial and debated issues that Jesus brings up here. First, 
what in the world is he saying about loving your enemies? That's a strange thing. It's not been taught prior to Jesus. It's hardly been taught after Jesus. Jesus is laying a new foundation of teaching here. Love your enemies? I want to first look at that, and then I want to secondly look at this last phrase, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What in the world is that? So, first, what is Jesus saying by loving your enemies? Let's remember who Jesus is talking to and the original context of what they would have heard. Enemies. Love your enemies. Who is Jesus talking to? Well, if you need further background, you can just turn your page over to chapter 4. You can see that he's in Galilee in chapter 4, verse 23. He's spreading throughout his fame throughout Syrian uh, people. So he's in the Middle East. He's in the Middle East 2,000 years ago in the first century. As he is here, he's talking to great crowds of people. His disciples, as you see in verse 1 of chapter 5, are up on a, a hillside, a mountaintop. And so he's talking to a group of Jewish people, primarily. And he is talking to a great crowd of people who would have been weak, would have been diseased, would have been sick, would have not been the elite of society. They would have been oppressed by the Roman Empire. That's who's in charge. And I want you to remember here for a moment that as we talk about the Roman oppression, that by this point in Jesus' words, the words that he spoke about last week, and, and not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but rather not resisting evil and using nonviolent, proactive strategies to forgive people who do violence against you, that he's talking to a group of people that have been oppressed for over 600 years. They have not had a king on the throne. They have not owned land. They have been underneath of the Persian army. They have been underneath of the Roman army. They have been underneath of other leaders who have been telling them how they should live. And these last several decades and centuries have been especially difficult in the Roman Empire. 600 plus years. We're about to have 4th of July picnic coming up. This is twice as long as the United States has even existed. Just put that in your mind right now, that your entire generation after generation of generation is to only know for such a long time oppression from cruel dictator-type people, taxing you like crazy, stealing your property, taking your children, all kinds of horrific things that you and I could never even dream of happening here in the United States. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Do you think they had any question about who their enemies might have been? I don't. I think it would have been obvious. Enemy number one, Roman soldiers, oppressive Roman government. And Jesus says that you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but I say, Love your enemies. And he's quoting from Leviticus 19 that was read for us just a moment ago. And if you followed along very closely, you would have noticed that Leviticus 19 does not say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The love your neighbor passage is in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, if you would have kept reading, you would have heard this passage. This is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33. And, and if a stranger comes in to your land, you shall not do them wrong. 
You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The context of Leviticus 19 is just pure love. Love for neighbors. Love for strangers. Love for the people that are in the community of Israel and the people that are outside the community of Israel. And unfortunately, by the time Jesus is teaching, Jewish people did not interpret Leviticus 19 as love your neighbor, including outsiders. So you can hear about Jesus' teaching if you've heard of the story of the Good Samaritan. And there's this debate, well, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus very provocatively tells a story about a Samaritan, an enemy, an outsider, not a Jewish person. And so you can find all throughout Jesus' teaching that he is trying to point at this question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is essentially saying, anyone. Anyone is your neighbor. And he takes it even more explicitly to say, yeah, even your enemies are your neighbors. You should love them too. And pray for them who persecute you. So hate your enemy is not in your Bibles, just in case any of you were wondering on that point. The law that Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17. Remember, I've kept pointing us back to there. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. He is not saying, hey, remember it says, hate your enemy? Well, let's put that away. It never said hate your enemy. The, the teaching of the Torah, the law of the Jewish scriptures, was love all of your neighbors, including the outsiders. And furthermore, you can hear like Proverbs 25 says, feed and give drink to your enemy. Chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. So the Old Testament scriptures, if you were a good faithful Jew and were reading them rightly, would have said that you would have loved all your neighbors, including outsiders, and you would have loved your enemies. And they didn't get that. So Jesus is setting them straight and saying that your righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees of his day needs to include the true message of love for all. But what does that mean? That's the question. What does it mean to love your enemy? Because when you and I hear the word love, do you realize that we are limited with one English word and some of you might say you love deep dish pizza because it's amazing, you love bacon, you love sports, you love your wife, you love your dog, and do we mean the same? Like pizza, my wife... I mean, pizza's good, but come on, like, let's be honest with ourselves. We are limited with language, with only one English word for love, that, the way we use it, and so the way we hear it. Also, when you hear the word love, a lot of you think tolerance, or be nice to people, or warm, fuzzy feelings. So imagine if you don't have a biblical definition of the word love, and you just import your own definitions of love, have warm, fuzzy feelings for your enemies. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying, love your enemy like you love pizza? Is he saying, be nice to them? Is he saying, be tolerant? Well, just, you know, let them do them and let them be themselves. You know, you should tolerate whatever they're doing. Oh, oppression's okay. Is that what he's saying by love your enemies? This is the way people talk today about tolerance and love. There's no sense to which we need to understand this word agape, the three different words that could be used for love in the Greek language that are here, the word agape is used, it is talking about an attitude and actions of deep commitment and unconditional love that aren't necessarily warm, fuzzy feelings all the time, 
nor a tolerance of evil. It's not loving to tolerate a child abuser. Say, well, I'm going to just love you and accept that and just let that keep going on. Does does that sound love? No, that's evil. We should hate what is evil and love what is good. And we can love someone by telling them, this is not cool. And that's, that's a loving thing to do. It's an attitude and an action that conforms with the biblical definition of agape love. As one definition I read said, a love of your will, a bending of your will toward the good of another person, even if it costs you greatly. That, that's a better idea of what Jesus is talking about. A bending of your will to the good of someone else. It doesn't necessarily mean you always have warm, fuzzy feelings. It doesn't mean that you should tolerate all that they're doing and say that that's okay, just keep doing it. True biblical love, in this sense, is a love of enemies and not winking at their evil behavior. It's not now to support the Roman government, but it's never to be done with violence or hate, as Jesus instructs in our two passages. Nonviolent enemy love. This is what he's talking about. Let's move on to the second thing. Perfect. What does the word perfect mean? You, therefore, must be perfect. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say almost every week in common language, you and I might say, well, obviously nobody's perfect. I heard it this week. I was talking with some people, and they're saying, well, I don't expect them to be perfect. And what, what do we mean when we say that sort of phrase? I don't expect you to be perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. We all have our flaws and failures. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? You must be perfect. No flaws, no failures. And that's the standard. Many people teach that sort of thing here in this passage. Some say what Jesus is doing is raising the bar really high and saying the standard is no flaws, no failures. You just got to be perfect all the time on your game, 100%. 99% is too short. If you fall short, sorry. That's why you need the cross. That's why you need forgiveness. That's why Jesus died for sinners, because nobody's perfect. Jesus is perfect. And I would suggest that that is a very unhelpful way for you to think about this phrase. First and foremost, because the word perfect a lot of times, again, with the love issue, we have like a language problem. When I hear perfect, I typically think of sinlessness, like I don't have any like faults or failures. Uh, It oftentimes, I think, conjures up this idea, too, that I have just this this no no blemishes on my record, and and that's not necessarily the way that this word is being used. Uh, A better translation would be complete, mature, the end goal, fully grown. It's the word used in the Old Testament Greek translation of a fully grown animal, that is being used on an animal sacrifice, and it is not like an infant. It is one that is fully grown. It, it is without blemish in the sense that it doesn't have diseases or in decay. So I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but an early church father that I've been reading about in some of the schoolwork I've been doing, his name is Irenaeus. He uses the illustration in one of his most popular books that he wrote several hundred years ago that in the Garden of Eden, we are like infants. The humanity, like the world. The world is in an infancy stage. And in that sense, 
it's perfect like a pure baby. And you say, oh, wow, the baby's got all kinds of potential and it's cute and it's wonderful and whatever. And he says, think about that when you see the story of Scripture, that you're infants, but that because of sin coming into the world, it, it stunted the growth. It, it retarded it. it. It made the growth and development of humanity not what it fully could be. It never reached its potential. And so although there has been growth and development in humanity, all of you look around the world and you see that there's both good that humanity has done and there is a lot of evil that humanity has done. And what Irenaeus says is that Jesus comes, he becomes the true, mature, fully grown, fully end goal, complete human that no one ever has been on the earth. He does it from the time of infancy and all the way to his adulthood. He grew in wisdom and stature through suffering. He was more and more obedient. And then he healed our disease so that we could receive the gift of the spirit of Jesus And therefore, we could become mature and reach the goal that we initially were given as human beings. So perfect should be more about completion, about there's an end goal that was intended with something that was like a project, and then it it finally reaches its destination. That's the word teleos in the Greek that's being read here. And I fear that when you and I hear perfect, you don't have, there's something that's in, in motion And that it's supposed to reach its end goal, and that end goal is to be like God. That's what this passage says. Be perfect like who? Like God. That should remind you of the first page of the Bible, that when we were first made, we were made in the image of God, to be like him, to reflect him. And that's the original potential of humanity, but immediately that image is marred and it is disrupted through the curse of sin and evil. So that's what I think perfect is about, and I think that's what love your enemies is about. Let's move on to our second question now. How do we do this? How practically does Jesus teach us to love our enemies and pursue maturity the way we were originally made to bear God's image and look more and more like God? Well, I think the the simple way to answer that question is to say, It is a change of the heart, and it is when you realize verse 20 as our key thesis statement, that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And again, Jesus is using this text as another illustration of that thesis statement. Your character must exceed that of the most religious people of your day. And when we think through what they were like, they were about external, superficial religion— and not about a heart change, they were very happy to obey the laws, but they did not do it from the heart. So for example, if I have a two-year-old son named John, and I'm walking with him on the street, and we're about to cross the road, I'm going to say, John, do not cross that road without holding my hand. You need to hold hands to cross the road. And what if John, he's getting smart, by the way. This kid is something else. But imagine him in his rebellious state as a little two-year-old. He goes like this, looks at me, and crosses without holding my hand. And then he says, Dad, I held hands when I crossed the street. I didn't break your rules or laws. I obeyed them. That is a good illustration of what the scribes and Pharisees are like. 
finding loopholes to try and say, well, we didn't break the rules. And Jesus repeatedly says, but you missed the whole point of them. And therefore, yes, you did break those rules. And that's what he's trying to say to them here. He's saying that the original intent of the law in Leviticus 19 was not for you to just love your next door neighbor and your other Jewish friends and your family members. Anybody does that. He says even non-Jewish people do that. The Gentiles do that. Tax collectors do that. Your enemies do that. An evil father will take care of his child when they ask for some food. They don't just say, oh, here's a rock. You wanted some bread? He's pointing out the just common righteousness that everybody possesses, the common goodness of people who bear God's image. And he's saying, no, no, the people who are of my kingdom, who have the spirit of Jesus, have a love that surpasses just an external common love. It gets into the heart. It follows the spirit of the law. And Jesus teaches us how we can get the love of enemies deep into our hearts in this passage. How does it happen? How do we follow the spirit of love? Jesus says, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, there's a lot more that probably could be said, but let's just take what Jesus says here. One simple strategy for us to grow affection and love for our enemies is to pray for them. Do you want to know one of the reasons I shared that opening story of Gordon Wilson? Is it not obvious now that as he is hurting from injuries, of having rubble crushed down on him four feet deep from buildings that people blew up, he says, I will pray for them today and tomorrow and every day. And I don't think that without that prayer, he could have gone up to the faces of those men who bombed and killed his daughter and said, I forgive you, let's be done with the violence and let's love one another. The bottom line is love. He was a man of prayer. And so prayer, my friends, it changes things. It changes your heart. He says, pray for those who persecute you. And I don't think this means pray imprecatory psalms, if you know what those are. Or in other words, pray that they die or go to jail. Well, I'm praying for them. I've got that enemy, that person that's rubbing me the wrong way, and I really hate them really bad. And I've been praying for them for a long time that they would just die. Like, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about praying on blessing for them, goodwill, conversion, repentance, a change of heart. Pray that through your forgiveness and through your nonviolent response, they would be changed. Prayer is a deep and profound mystery at times, and I don't think that sometimes we realize that it does change you, it changes other people, and I call all of us to take these words of Jesus seriously. Pray. Pray not just for your friends and family. Anybody does that. Pray for the people that you would be tempted to start tweeting, Facebook post messaging as you vent and gossip, bad mouth, use sarcasm. I mean, this is typically how we respond when people do evil against us. Jesus says, pray. Pray your heart repeatedly will be changed as you start praying blessing on that person. And so I want you to think about this personally. When you think of Jesus' words and who you should be praying for, 
Who would you consider your enemies? We said it was quite clear in Jesus' day that it was more than likely going to pop into your head right away. Well, the Roman government are our enemies. They're oppressing us. Do some of you have enemies in political parties that you just can't stand when they're on the television or when they say things? Or do some of you have enemies overseas when you think of terrorist attacks and ISIS? When you hear news updates about things North Korea wants to do. Sometimes when you hear love your enemies, for some of you, that's probably who you should be praying for because there is an anger. Sometimes righteously, but oftentimes not. How about family members? Do you have family members that have sinned against you in a way where you hate them and you can't stand them and they have so sinned against you either with so many occurrences or maybe that one devastating event in your life and you just have never forgiven them and Jesus is asking you to pray for them. Not that they get what's coming to them but they get the mercy and love of Jesus that they do not deserve and that their hearts would be changed and that you would be reconciled. Do you have any co-workers, any unruly next-door neighbors that won't stop disrupting your life and annoying you? There are two clear enemies that are being referenced here in the text, tax collectors, and then this phrase Gentiles, which just means non-Jews, pagans, the Romans. And from looking at the life of Jesus, when you read not just what he said, but how he lived his life, he was a man of his word, was he? Was he not? He ate and drank with tax collectors. He included one of his disciples, Matthew, the one who we think put together this gospel, Matthew, a Levite, uh, Matthew, who was a tax collector. Imagine Jesus eating with a white supremacist at a KKK rally. That's the sort of thing when you read the phrase, Jesus ate and drank with sinners, that we're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like Jesus. But sometimes you need to realize that when it says he ate and drank with sinners, it'd be like the very people that you would think, I hate those people. Jesus eating a meal with members of ISIS, or I was thinking of like, who's been villainized in the news recently? Think of a guy like Harry Weinstein as like, oh yes, terrible woman abuser and these celebrities that use their power. And yeah, I mean, this is this, they're public enemy number one right now. And imagine Jesus sitting down and having a meal with that person and loving them. So I wonder, could, could you pray? for the enemies in your life. Could you, could you do that today? Right now? Can you think of anyone that you struggle to love? I want to encourage us as we leave here today to not see these words from Jesus as like, oh, that was, that was you know, helpful teaching, but rather, this is the way we should live. 
And I want us to conclude with this last question, why? Why should we live this way? Why should we take up these words and love our enemies and strive for a maturity of reflecting the image of God? And I'm going to give you two reasons why. Reason number one, because this is what God is like. It says in our text that, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. One of the motivators is that you would be like the heavenly Father. And he he talks earlier in verse 45, For your Father who is in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil, And on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It seems like an odd move, but he turns to weather patterns. He says, guys, I want you to whip out your iPhones and I want you to look at weather patterns. And I want you to think all around the world, what's the weather like? Where's the the person you're thinking of, the enemy that you have, the most evil society that you could imagine? And I want you to just on a regular basis look at what the weather's like. Is every single day a tornado and a tsunami or a hurricane in those places? And Jesus' point is no. Like he, he brings the sun up today all over Chicago, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. He brings the rain down today, and I know for a lot of us we think of the rain negatively, but the sun rising and the rain falling down is, is important for an agricultural society to have food. And it's actually important for us to have food, even though most of you I think all of you aren't farmers. But you at least realize, like, we kind of need rain to come down in order for us to eat. It's not going to go well if there's just no rain for anybody on the whole planet for years. We will starve. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about God is providing all that you need, whether you are the worst person on the face of the earth or you're the greatest saint that has ever lived. That's Jesus' point. Look to the mercy of God. That is maturity. He gives generously to all. He provides what theologians have called common grace. He shows no partiality, no difference. So whether you have a different ethnicity, whether you have a different thought process toward sexuality, all kinds of things that we would want to segment, God is saying, no, 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 His grace falls down on everybody. Is that your posture toward the world? The grace and mercy of God should motivate you as you meditate on the way that God lavishes his grace on the whole earth for you to be. I want to be like that. That's why I love to say repeatedly the phrase, you will become what you behold. And in this passage of Scripture, as Jesus points to the mercy of God and the full perfection of God's mature character that cannot be improved, that cannot grow and develop any further, as you look into the face of Jesus and his love for his enemies, as he hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, you should behold the beautiful character of a merciful and gracious God and say, that's what I want to be like. That's what he's like. And when we were made originally to be like that, and that's why there's this sense of awe and wonder that's stirred up when we behold those things. That's the first reason why I want you to consider following the way of Jesus. The second reason I want to give is because 
pragmatically, it works. And I typically don't preach points like this, but I just really felt like it was important for us to pragmatically realize what Jesus is saying is powerful and effective and it works. For example, example number one. Who did this teaching and it led to a powerful world-changing event that led all of you into this room today that you stand up off your feet, you sing praise to the Lord. Jesus paid it all. Jesus, thank you. Because somebody named Jesus, who said these things, did not just preach a sermon. He lived a life full of enemy love. And as Karen read for us earlier in Romans chapter 5, it was, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That while we were God's enemies, because of the death of Jesus, we can become children of God. Meditate on the gospel and realize Wasn't it the gospel and the good news and the grace of Jesus' love toward you, his enemy, that stirred you to follow him in the first place? Or as Romans chapter 2 will say, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Week in and week out, the reason why people come to worship at Christian churches, especially ones that preach the gospel, is not because of being condemned and told, you're terrible, God hates you, try harder, is because they are wooed and awed and and so amazed at and worthy of praise of the God who loves his enemies. When people of all races and types and humanity for all ages has slapped God in the face time and time again, Ephesians 2 says, but God, rich in mercy, poured out his love by sending Jesus, even though we were enemies of God, children of wrath. Did it work? Did Jesus' non-violent, non-retaliation love win your heart over to want to be more like Jesus and follow him? Because, friend, if that's not why you're here, if that's not why you're doing this thing called Christianity and following Jesus, then you're probably doing it for the wrong reason. It's the love of God that's poured out into our hearts as we meditate on who he is, and it, it, it actually works. Like This pragmatically changes lives. We're here as a testimony of the changed lives of the good news of this message in Matthew 5. And everybody since the days of Jesus has been continually illustrating the power of these words. Violence feels like it works, but only in the short term. Nonviolent enemy love changes the world for the long term, even if it doesn't work right away, and even if it costs those people who pursue that, that way of life, even if it costs them their life. The kingdom grows and has grown because of Nonviolent enemy love, just like Jesus did. As 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Jesus died for us to leave us an example to follow. So Jesus dying for you is not just, wow, that's really good that he took away all our sins. That's a great message. That's a great song to sing. Jesus paid it all. That is worthy of a lifetime of praise, but it is also worthy of a lifetime of imitation. Be imitators of God 
and be like him. Follow the example that Jesus left of nonviolent enemy love. Daryl Davis is an illustration of this. Daryl Davis was recently in some sort of documentary that I have not watched, but I heard about from a friend, and he said that Daryl Davis was befriending KKK members, and because of his repeated love toward KKK members, Daryl Davis is an African American, by the way, that he would repeatedly be given robes from KKK members, and he has a whole like trophy room full of former KKK members because of one man's choice to love, nonviolently, the people that you would call his enemies. I mentioned last week Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is very clear on this topic. At one point he says, to our most bitter opponents we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force soul force. Do to us whatever you will, and we will continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as just a moral obligation as cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, but we will love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at midnight and beat us and leave us half dead, and we will love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you with the process, and our victory will then be a double victory. The United States of America is not perfect. It is not mature. It has not fully arrived with a humanity of people that are living just like God, and especially on these racial issues. But would anybody deny that the nonviolent enemy love of men like Martin Luther King and the movement that was followed from the preaching like this has changed forever the race relations in the last 50 years? Like, who would deny that? There is still much more that needs to be done. And it's not going to be done in violent means. So America is different. A community of KKK members are different. The whole world is different. The entire Christian people, the start of early Christianity was started by nonviolent enemy love. I mentioned last week that the most repeated Bible verse in all of the early church was this verse right here. It would be like your John 3.16, the one that everybody knew. So 28 different times by 10 different authors in the first 300 years, more than any other verse, Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies. And at the time of Jesus, 0.02% of the Roman Empire were Christians. 0.02% at the time of Jesus, the early church. And for 300 years... Christians were called atheists. They were brutally persecuted. Many of them were burned to the stake. They were torn apart by wild animals. Some were eaten by lions. Some were dragged around by horses. There are stories of men and women being grilled alive, skinned alive, crucified upside down. Just yesterday, 
I was reading one of the early church history books I had to read for this class I'm taking, and I heard a whole chapter on this woman named Perpetua. Never heard of her before. Famous female martyr. All the time you always hear about men in the early church because women were not seen as respected as much. But Perpetua was a famous female martyr. Her story was incredible. She was tied up. A soldier came and he missed and hit her collarbone. And she helped him hit the sword through her throat and redirected it because she knew that her death would contain more power than her life and it would expand the mission of the kingdom. So what was the result of 300 years of killing? Do you know that 0.02% turned to 10% of the Roman Empire. And as Tertullian said, it was because of the blood of the martyrs that the church grew and grew. So they would say, kill us, torture us, plunder our property, cause us pain and suffering. But you cannot stop us. You cannot destroy our mission. The early church, the earliest Christians, one of the things that would have defined them would have been like, this is who we are. And it pragmatically advanced the gospel. Like it worked. The gospel spread because of this. Is nonviolent enemy love? So, question for us. Does the 2018 Embassy Church and the American church that we're a part of, the evangelicals that you know, are we even close to saying that we are defined and known by enemy love? Like this is just a hallmark of, this is one of our clear calling cards is that we love our enemies. My hope and prayer is that this church will be a church that is not afraid to love all kinds of people, be welcoming to all, go out to all, and pray for all. Because Jesus has called us to love our neighbors and furthermore love our enemies. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you now for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ who dies for his enemies, hanging on a cross and praying for them, praying for the very persecutors that pierced his hands and his feet with nails, who put a crown of thorns on his head, and he repeatedly says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I pray, God, that we will Have the spirit of Jesus upon us, like Gordon Wilson did, like the African-American who loved KKK members, the spirit of Jesus that led many Christian men and women in the 1960s and 70s to nonviolently but aggressively attack the message of violence against African-Americans. So, Lord, I pray that whatever those enemies might be now, whoever around the room that we're struggling to love, that the simple act of praying repeatedly and regularly will change our hearts. And the amazing good news of Jesus' love for us, sinners, who were first enemies of God, would change our own hearts and realize if you did that for us, How can we not do that for our enemies? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.